This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with Robert Edward Grant. I've been super excited about this podcast. I am so fascinated by his work. I was just telling him that I think he is one of the few polymyths today. Uh, Our society typically encourages very uh, compartmentalized, myopic focus of interest and study and, uh, you know, uh, fields of uh, livelihood. So mm-hmm. it's really often, I, I know my most of my life I was penalized for, you know, they, they would tell me I wasn't focusing when I would mm-hmm. want to integrate mm-hmm. different subjects. But anybody who follows my podcast knows that I like to integrate subjects. That's what I do. So um, so here is really just a very incredibly brilliant and interesting individual. I will read the bio just because it is so extensive and I don't typically do this, but I think it warrants that. So Robert Grant is a successful entrepreneur, best-selling author of Philomath and also Polymath, inventor of several corporate enterprises and the host of Kodak, which I have seen two episodes of now. It's phenomenal. And I encourage, yeah, I absolutely found it fascinating. So that was kind of a hobby it was a hobby project that's becoming a lot more now. I, I find it so hobby, funny but... when I talk to people and they tell me about their hobbies. I'm like, that this is a hobby? I mean, this is... It, yeah. yeah. It's definitely so we, my hobby. <laughs> yeah, we, we can get into that because it, it is really fascinating work. Um, an original television series on Gaia and Amazon Prime. He's an artist, sculptor, music theorist, musician author of numerous research and patent publications, and some of his uh, patents are also really fascinating and personally of great interest to me, uh, some of the ocular stuff. Um, he doesn't know my story, but I'm blind in one eye. So, Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was born with a congenital rebel. At least this is how the story goes. Mm-hmm. My mother was sick during first trimester pregnancy, so I'm blind in one eye. I'm hearing impaired. I had heart surgery when I was a year old. I was born with fine graphic motor impairment. Spent growth, asymmetrical bone development, all sorts of complications. And they told my mom the best she could hope was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life. And uh, actually, when they had done the testing, the doctor read the titer wrong because he was dyslexic. He read it as being 112. It was really 121. Had he read it correctly, my mom would have had an abortion. And so my parents sued, and it was called oh. a wrongful birth case. But I did not feel like it was a wrongful birth because I'm very grateful to be here. So, oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, 
and uh, spanning biology, number theory, geometry, physics. His companies like his interests span healthcare, security, blockchain, clean tech, smart optic technologies, AR, VR, and fine tech, one of which is Crown Sterling, a leader in personal data sovereignty and quantum resistant encryption that includes utility token, the Crown Ser Sovereign. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get into all of that. But without further ado, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great to be here with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Yeah, so maybe we can start with, uh, we'll start with the Crown Sterling and we'll start with mm -hmm. the, the cryptocurrency that you've developed. And Sure. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, um, I've always been very passionate about free speech. And I believe it's a fundamental tenet of any successful governance and democratic system. You can't have companies run without free speech. Now, it doesn't mean to say you don't pay for telling your boss where to shove it. You know, you can definitely end up <laughs> facing consequences on it, but I think you should be allowed to tell your boss where to shove it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can make that choice and deal with the consequences of it. And there should be at times consequences for saying things. But but to, to try to muffle society, I think is a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake that has been proven by history not to work at all. Yeah. It's I'm extremely at... counterproductive. So, you know, there's a reason why the founding fathers of the United States decided that the First Amendment that formed the basis of the Bill of Rights is free speech. I mean, do you think that it was just my accident? Oh, okay, it we've got all these one. things we want to protect, but, you know, oh, geez, oh, yeah, that one about free speech. Let's just throw that in there somewhere. No, right. they threw it at the very top because without it, none of the rest can work at all. Exactly. I agree. And this is such a fundamental thing that I don't know what kids are being taught in schools today. I think that universities have become indoctrination, inculcation institutions I, of, I'm not of so a sure certain that... type of thinking that is anathema to what I'm talking about. I, I agree. I'm not so sure that they, I think they've gotten progressively worse, but, you know, oh, I've, I've studied a lot of- I think education today has become beyond a joke. Yes. It's become beyond a joke. I hate to say this and- you know, I, I've spent my whole life studying. I'm a philomath. I'm a polymath. And I have spent my whole life studying and researching and doing work uh, because I love learning. Mm -hmm. But what yeah. has become the education system today is we are now at the imp of the perverse. It is so upside down and backwards. And I think what's happened now is that there's so much inculcation going on across society. We have subliminal brainwashing happening right now. I just wrote a new book called NeuroMind. So NeuroMind, like neuro, like, like neurological yeah. mind, but it's not M-I-N-D, it's M-I-N-E-D. So on the cover of the book, it's an interesting cover. It's got a QR code. Uh, I've got a big publisher who's publishing it right now, and it's finished. We wrote it about a year ago now, nine months ago. And basically, uh, it's got a QR code of, of two brain hemispheres, left and right brain hemispheres, and that's the shape of the QR code. And so you could put your phone over it and then it takes you to a little introductory video of it. But what it basically is saying is that data is the new oil. Yeah. And they're data mining the students. And when you look into SEL, a lot of it is tied to tech ed. So technological education, which is not only uh, controlling and manipulating the students, but it's also data mining them. Yeah. And, and most people don't know the value of their data. I just found out that the going rate for type 2 diabetes, geolocation, and 
online data for a person who suffers from type 2 diabetes can be as high as $27,000 a year. Wow. Wow. That's astounding, right? Because all this data is used in interpolating and checking on compliance of, you know, things like pharmaceutical drugs, et cetera, right? And they are becoming very expensive aspects of these clinical trials that are being monitored in this way. So people don't realize that their data is fast becoming, if it's already the world's most viable asset data, then your data is likely to become your most viable asset. Yeah. And your individuality, what's more important to you than your ability to separate yourself from other would-be fakes of you? And trust me, I already have at least 10 to 15 fakes on social media of me. And today, if you're not paying for an app, you're the product. Right. So I, uh, I had this one experience where one of my friends was running for Congress. He happened to lose in the last election, but uh, it was a close race. But I asked him how he knows, you know, when he meets with somebody, what their political leanings would be. And he said, he said, well, here's how I know I, I get this app. I have this app that tells me what everyone's political leaning is. And I'm like, what? what? What are you talking about? And he says, yeah, there's an app and I could pay for this as a person running for Congress. I'm like, what's it have? And I looked at the app and I looked up my name. And it had my house and it had my address, had all this information on it. But not only that, it had 56 pages on me alone. Wow. wow. And it included every single political leaning I have through their AI interpretation of me. How and I'm talking about I'm talking about things like, you know, of course, the major stuff that you can imagine. What's my voting record been? You know, blah, blah, blah. But in addition to that, things like what's my position on abortion, wow. which I'm for a woman's right to choose, but not in late stage pregnancy. So when I saw it on the app as saying that I was against abortion, I was like, ah, I found a mistake. And he said, no, 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 no. Hit the asterisk. And next to the asterisk, it said, you only approve of, uh, of abortion in early stage pregnancy, not late stage pregnancy. Wow. That's the level of nuance that these apps know about you. And I'm like, but I've never told anybody this. I don't talk to anybody about this. They're like, well, it gets mind off of your WhatsApp. It gets mind off of Telegram. It gets mind off of your different social media apps. And I looked at it and said that I was religiously minded. I said, I'm not religiously minded. They said, yeah, but you have two children that go to private schools. So therefore, you will likely vote. Hmm? Are they parochial schools or they're just private schools? No, they're private schools. Okay. Private schools, but they, yeah, they, they have a parochial aspect, you know, the Lutheran, um, and I'm not Lutheran, but, you know, that was like the, the best school around that we could get our right. kids into. And, but that because I have kids in private schools, I'm likely to vote alongside with more family values. So therefore the app interpolates me as being more religiously minded. I mean- it even knew my position on how I felt about countries like China. Is China a threat to the United States? And was I a hawk during COVID? Now, what does it mean to be a hawk during COVID? Did I ask my employees to come into work during COVID? And the answer is, yeah, right after the COVID requirements were over, we had everyone come back into the office. And they said that was a hawk on COVID because I didn't just let everyone continue to stay working from home. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's considered being a hawk. Okay. 
Um, yeah. So think about this. This starts to turn really dystopian when you start thinking about it, because what if then I get deemed to be a dissident mm -hmm. when a new regime gets in? Right. It starts to look a lot like marking houses and a lot like Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. Or like so, China, WeChat. Oh, yeah. So WeChat or, you know, social credit system or mm -hmm. TikTok. TikTok yep. doesn't only own the data that you put in place on TikTok. Joe Rogan just read the whole terms and conditions. It also technically owns all of the data on your phone in total, yep. as well as all of the data on your ancillary computers that aren't even connected to the app TikTok because they can put spyware onto your app and then have it infiltrate all of your computer systems. Now they own all of your data and you already signed it in a contract just through the terms and conditions. And anybody who uses it will notice it doesn't just shut off. It's always running in the background. Yeah. yeah. It's a mass surveillance system. Yeah. Okay. They so they all are. I mean, the, the, there's varying degrees in uh, the contracts and the agreements that you sign, but they all are. So, you know, one is uh, China's government spying on you and the other is our, uh, you know, agency. So, spying. and this is where I think that, you know, I believe governments exist to safeguard the rights of individuals. I believe governments you know, from the Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I believe governments exist to protect the individual. It's not that individuals exist to protect the government. Right. Well, and the so of the government, the consent of the governed part seems to be a bit lost. Missing. Like, it's yeah. a bit lost. Yeah, no, I, I watched it in a congressional hearing a few days ago when one of the guys being interviewed was asked to make comments that he wasn't allowed to comment to provide more context. And he said, wait a minute, you work for me. I pay taxes. You do what I tell you to do. It was like I wanted to stand up and cheer for this guy. Yeah, seriously. And this lady was hammering the gavel. She's like, you're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to talk. And this is exactly this mentality of trying to gag people. Yeah. And this is what lawyers do. And lawyers are some like... of the most pernicious aspect of society. I'm sorry. We I have agree. way too many lawyers. Most countries limit the number of lawyers that you can actually have. Yeah. I, one of my favorite jokes is, you know, what do you call a thousand lawyers chained to the bottom of the ocean? What is it? A good start. <laughs> so... I mean, I do have a lot of lawyer friends. I don't know any of them that really love their job, but I can tell you this right now. We have way too many of them in our government, and they're they are basically creating circumstances. It's like uh, it reminds me of what happened during Sarbanes-Oxley when it became the you know Perpetual Employment Act for all accountants. It's the same thing for lawyers right now. And, and I think it's just there's a reason why most countries limit the number of lawyers that can matriculate through universities to a certain percent of the population. This is one of the problems we have in our society right now. We have far too many lawyers. So therefore we have far too much high expenses related to healthcare. I mean, I could go on and on. We need so much tort reform. We can't get things like term limits. It's all because we have way too many lawyers. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say it. It's the and fact. The lawyers are not serving the people. The, no, they serve themselves, duh. Or, or they, right, they serve themselves, but indirectly a lot of times that, that's serving the, uh, those above them. Right. Who? Oh, who yeah. Trying to control the masses. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing is, is we have a, a very problematic system that's above us right now because 
we lost, it used to be, in 1776, we went from monarch as sovereign mm -hmm. to government as sovereign, right? And it was a loose confederacy. So the federal government was always intended, there's a reason why states exist the way they, they do, because they tried to minimize the role of the federal government to keep government more local, right? It was always never supposed to be a democracy. It was always supposed to be a republic. The yeah, famous constitutional line, republic. That's right. It's a constitutional republic. So the famous line when they're coming out of, you know, the all the 13 states and the Continental Congress were trying to unite and they couldn't get everyone to agree. New York wouldn't agree. South Carolina wouldn't agree right. in coming together. But they, they wrote a letter to which was not rudely worded to the king of england george the third saying hey we think we should have you know a representation if we're going to be taxed and and the amount of tax that they were being taxed on was less than two percent two percent yeah we're yeah. up to like 40 percent now and it really they would be laughing at us going what the heck have you guys done right seriously but i was i was kind of fascinated by the whole thing and so when i started reading up about it and reading the memoirs and of, of people during the time, like Benjamin Franklin, as well as uh, John Adams, et cetera. And then David McCullough did some really great work uh, basically chronicling their lives in, you know, biographical books that were fantastic. But, you know, when, when, uh, when they couldn't get all the states to agree, the English king wrote back a letter that they thought was going to be measured and probably tempered a little bit. And and, you know, maybe conciliatory. And in fact, the English king didn't even write it back to them. They just made out, a, put out a proclamation saying that all these members of the Continental Congress, the so-called Continental Congress, are all sentenced to death for treason. Right. And so the famous line by Benjamin Franklin was, wow, what we couldn't do to unite ourselves, the English king just did for us. For now, either we shall hang together or hang separately. Exactly. Right. And and that became the the canon that became the cannonball fire, right? That basically started the the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Well, when you look at what they were trying to do and going from a monarch that was a, a, a monarchy that was sovereign to a government that's sovereign, and I think the the beginning of the American story was about that. We became a government that was sovereign, and then over time it devolved, yeah. and then probably right after World War II, it it transitioned from government as sovereign to corporation as sovereign. Mm -hmm. That's right. I, I would argue probably even earlier, though. I mean, when you look into the Organic Act of 1871, you know, they made D.C. into a corporation. And I think a lot of the misinterpretation of how that gets executed has made the rest of the country act as though it, it is also part of a corporation. Absolutely. So, you know, when you look at it where it is today, it is now transitioning you know, from government as sovereign has already transitioned towards corporation as sovereign. And the next transition is either going to be more towards corporation, right? And oligopolies and technocratic mm -hmm. sovereigns, mm -hmm. right? The technocratic sovereign, or it's going to be to the individual. Right. And, and I, think I think that's the transition that's happening right now. So what I was hoping is that we could level the playing field okay. and, and declare that data is the individual personal property of the original producer. It should be, yeah. That's right. So I'm... if I want to sell my blood plasma, I can sell my blood plasma. Someone can't lay claim to control my blood plasma. Well, my data is really no different. It's my actions. It's my behavior. And now if this is the most valuable asset in the world, yeah, 
I should be able to participate in that. I should own that. And maybe for the first time in human history, human beings just by existing through their behaviors are able to create value. Is there a way out of this to be able to have a universal passive income for people? And so therefore, that's when I started thinking about how could I construct something like this? Because the new world is going to have new types of borders. You know, yeah. when, when Iran just recently had this uprising, you probably saw they had an uprising very recently over, you know, November, December timeframe. Sure. And I had many of my followers in Tehran, almost 100,000 people asking me to, you know, make comments on it and to support their efforts and like raise awareness on it. And so I did. I did several posts like that. What you figured out, you know, what I figured out through this whole thing is that what we thought of before as national boundaries no longer exist in the same way that they did now that we have boundaryless world on social media. Yeah. So I have people that ascribe more to my way of thinking and my philosophy that I share with them than they do to their own governments. Mm -hmm. Right. They know me. They don't know anyone in their government per se. Right. So therefore, what's happening is you're already seeing that this national boundary condition that has been, you know, put in place by geographical borders mm -hmm. is now being supplanted by a digital borderless world. Yeah. It's it's borderless from a geographic perspective. The new borders now are ideological. Mm-hmm. So okay. people are are self-selecting themselves into certain communities of followership, right? That's basically what's happening. Sure. So then when Instagram and Facebook started to really clamp down on censorship and all the stuff that was happening related to, you know, COVID-19, et cetera, et cetera, then I thought I started thinking as an influencer, this is lame. How the heck is this going to work? So if they just decide to cut me off, and I happened to use one day, I was talking about Egyptology on one of my posts, and I was talking about ISIS, and they thought, the AI thought I was talking about ISIS case. So they censored me. So I got shadow banned for three months. And, you know, that kind of sucked. And so I started thinking, well, where else could I go? And I found that if I wanted to take a sizable community, I couldn't put everyone on WhatsApp, and it's not practical to put it on my personal website. So... I needed to find a way to get all my data so that it was safeguarded and, and replicated in another location so I don't lose all the stuff that I put on there. Because I sort of use social media as a giant storage device in a way yeah. okay. with history and everything, it. right? Yep. And so I, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to beef up my website. I'm going to put all of my posts and everything on my website. Right. And then I'm going to search out to see if I could go on Telegram, Signal, or one of these other things so that I can actually have real conversations and not be censored. Or shadow banned. Mm -hmm. Shadow banned means that I post something and no one gets to see it anyway. Yes, I'm very familiar with it. Right, it's like I, I'm they just block even banned or my followers. Calls. See the way that social media works today. It's not oriented around the influencer. It's oriented around what benefits the company, right? And so the company thinks that your followers aren't really your followers. They're they're Instagram's followers, and they're giving them to you on loan when you post things that benefit them. Right. Right. So I started thinking, where could I go? So I looked at all the different apps and Telegram was the only one that allowed me to have more than 100 people in a chat. Mm -hmm. And it could go up to 250,000. I was still thinking that's not really enough. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to limit how much I because I'm going to hit this wall of how far I can go with it. Right. 
And then I thought it was encrypted also, but it's not really encrypted. So Telegram is not an end-to-end -end encrypted chat. What it is is you have to hit and select secret chat in only one-on-one -on -one conversations. Yep. Any group conversations are not at all encrypted. And by the way, all that data is scraped. The business model for both WhatsApp and Telegram, it is all about scraping your data. Yep. So wait a minute. It's it's supposed to be encrypted. So yeah, it's encrypted, but it's all monitored. Right. So this it's is just a fact. It's surveilled encryption. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a bait and switch is what it is. So then I thought, geez, we need to create a system that allows for sovereign communities mm -hmm. to be able to be fully quantum secure encrypted mm -hmm. and all on blockchain so that nobody, not me, not anybody else, has the ability to censor it. So we put in safeguards into this. So we created such an app. It's the first quantum secure decentralized communities app. Right. And it is, uh, it's got the same encryption that's used on nuclear codes. And nobody can crack it. No government can crack it. And that's what people don't know. All the encryptions that have been existing so far have all been crackable by the U.S. government, by any government. Of course. I said because that it's from all the very beginning. Course. It's all based on brute force analysis. So you throw enough compu computational power behind it, you can crack anything. But not with our type of encryption because ours is not based on equation. It's based on information theory. And so there is no equation or quadratic formula or function to be able to crack our encryption. It's called a one-time pad. You can look it up on, on Wikipedia. One-time pad. It's not crackable encryption. We never use the same key twice. We had to create an AI to do this. So we basically took that and a novel compression technology and combined them together into a new app called Orion. And Orion is the first quantum secure decentralized communities app where sovereign communities will even be able to have their own currencies within there as well. Okay. So think of it as like an Ethereum platform, but instead of having companies, it'll be communities. And communities will have their own, you know, uh, quantum secure barter systems and everything within them, stores, you name it, you can have it all. And none of it will be monitored by us because all of it is on the network of nodes. So there's thousands of nodal network on it. Mm -hmm. So the data is not stored in any one node. It's fragmented across all of them. So in order to get someone's information, if the government showed up to me and said, hey, we want to see John's, you know, so John Smith's data, I can't give it to him because I don't have it. It's all spread across a gigantic nodal network. We do have some protection mechanisms on there, and we require that because it's like you setting up your own website. We created a protocol. We're like a white label for a community. We created a protocol. You're going to build on top of that protocol, and you have to agree that you own the monetization of your own protocol. So it's going to be your own usage, just like if you set up your own website. So if, if you set up your own website and the government wanted to surveil you in the back end of your website, then they could go to you and say, we have a warrant, we want to see all this. But you still have the right to say, I plead the fifth, right? And if they can't get in through cracking the encryption, then they just can't get in, right? Mm -hmm. But what we did is we created a platform that nobody can crack. And we don't have any of it on our servers, so we're not liable for it. Each community owner is liable for their own, period. Nobody can basically give it up. The only way to get at it was be, would be if every node validator agreed. And that's not going to happen. Right, of course. <laughs> so this this is what we've been looking for from a social media perspective. No censorship, 
if someone tries to post something like ex, you know exploitative like child pornography or something like that it will just the the ai just will not let them post it okay. it's going to be like this is not approved you know to be posted but we're not monitoring i won't even know that that happened the only people that will know that that happened are the people that posted it oh wow or so, tried attempted to post it right so kind of like when you get censored on uh, these traditional platforms and you just get an X, like you can't share that link. Well, no, what happens is you just won't even be able to share it, right? Right now yeah, that... what happens is they'll put a they'll put like a, a blurry screen over it and say, would you like to see this? And you can see why. And usually it's for something like our fact checkers who were, you know, all inculcated the same way they were, uh -huh. uh, say that this is not factual. You know, that really got me upset one day when, there was a quote by Marcus Aurelius mm -hmm. about the different uh, members of society and where they stood on the totem pole of life. And he had lawyers right at the bottom. And he it was like some derogatory comments by, comment by Marcus Aurelius, who is this, you know, Roman emperor. Yeah. And, uh, and then, possibly, of course, it was possibly because it was, three people. They it was know. derogatory. And of course, it's like, you know, way back in the first century BC or something is when, yeah. when he said this. And because it was somewhat derogatory to lawyers, the fact checkers who were probably lawyers were like, this isn't factual. Well, how do you know this? <laughs> right. I mean, really? I read the same thing in his book, but they just don't like what they're hearing because it's exactly. making them look bad. Right. See, the thing is, we don't believe that ethics are really what's beneficial to everybody or what true ethics are. We see the world not as it is. We see it as we are. We see it as we are, therefore... Anything that benefits us is magically good for the world, and anything that doesn't benefit us is evil. That seems that's true. the truth in ethics. That seems so. They operate, yeah. That's the way it is. So, so basically, what I thought was we need to have an app like this so that communities can become borderless, and the new borders in the future will be encryption strength. The yeah. border that will protect your individuality, the border that will protect your sovereign community will be the strength of your encryption. Because the next wars are not likely to be physical. They're likely already happening digitally. Oh, definitely. We're already at war with China. Let's face it. We've been I, at war with China I, for a while in a digital I, war. I, I would argue we're already in a world war, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just China. If you're a regular listener to my show, then you already know how much I love Fox & Sons coffee. When my listener Stephen from Fox & Sons contacted me about recommending his coffee on the show, I was honored, but also adamant about only recommending products to my audience that are of the highest quality and integrity. I can't tell you how much I enjoy my Fox & Sons coffee in the morning. And not only is this top-shelf coffee from a family-owned company, it's also sourced from small-batched organic family farms. And you know how important that is to me. You can really help them out and help me out by helping yourself to a fresh bag of Fox & Sons coffee. Visit the website, foxnsons.com. That's fox, the letter N, sons.com. And use the promo code CTP for full 18% off orders over $25. And on any orders over $37.99, the shipping is free. So ditch your stale factory farm coffee and support a family-owned business of a loyal listener of the Courtney Turner podcast, Fox and Sons Coffee. All right, let's get back to the show. So we made this 
we made this uh, digital sovereignty bill of rights. Okay. Data bill of rights. We put it in the first Genesis chain of our blockchain. That, and the statement is that we believe that data is the intangible personal property of the original producer, and therefore it's protected by the U.S. Constitution, by the European Union Charter of Human Rights, and the Charter of Human Rights as well for the United Nations, and calling out each of the articles that basically are cited in that. Data is difficult to maintain privacy regarding. Privacy is tough, sure. but ownership is not tough. Right. right. Your right to own things is a basic human right. Yeah, a basic inalienable right, I would argue. Um, but it, it sounds like this does uh, deal with privacy to some extent as well, because yeah, it's not completely, but because uh, of the uh, scattering of it, because you can't uh, collect it and then hand it over. In that regard, at least it's not it's not a, it's not a seamless kind of uh, open availability. No, no. So basically, I mean, somebody way, could obviously in the community do a screenshot and share that. Like the, you can't prevent that. Oh, you yeah, but, you can. You can actually prevent screenshots. Oh, you can't. Well, okay. There's right. new okay. software now that we have that mm -hmm. doesn't allow you to take a screenshot. So if you try to take a screenshot on Apple, watching an Apple TV show or something, right? You can't screenshot it. If you try to screen capture it, you can't screen capture it. Wow. Now you could do things with mirrors. Right. And other phones, I could take one phone. Right. That's right, what I was just thinking. Take a yeah. picture and do one of these things. I immediately thought, yeah, not that. You can't screenshot it. Right. Okay. But so the, I'm just saying there there would be mechanisms. Somebody could take a camera and they would be able to, but it's much harder. It sounds like there, much is, harder. Some, there is some barrier of privacy. It's not yep. easily. There absolutely is. And and yet it's an app that looks, you know, has the same functioning capability as, except it's really encrypted, as Telegram. There's no limit to the size of your group. You could have millions and millions of people on this, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm really happy to say that it's now built. And I was just playing on it. It's very cool. I'm super excited. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait for this to get out to the world because I think it's going to become a platform for sovereign communities to flourish. Yeah, well, and we need that because they're really trying to atomize people. I think that's something that so people are not able to find other people that they want to connect with. I think that's a real problem currently, R regardless of geographical boundaries. I just think because of all of the censorship, um, you know, certainly we saw in the past few years where they were physically locking people down and isolating them. But now you have 15-minute cities and people are being locked in. Uh, no, and I, I think... It's 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 not pretty the way it's going because even Elon Musk, you know, he um, sort of exposed all of this about how the FBI was hiding stories, et cetera, you know, and making sure that they don't get out. And so, wait a minute, is there is the election fraud actually at the ballot box? You know, is it is it all the stuff that like people talk about Dominion? Well, maybe not. Possibly, possibly it is, but probably not. But how do you call it when it's like? known propaganda. Mm -hmm. That to me is just as much election fraud as anything else. Because what's happened now is you use big tech to selectively expose the population to certain news items. Yeah. Well, and we are all being cattle prod subliminally so that we stay longer on these apps, so we get more dopamine hit, so that we can make them more money and they can capture more data. Yep. We're like, we're no different than Neo in the Matrix. We're just 
Instead of providing energy, we're providing data. But wait, one over energy is information. Yeah, of course. I, I think that social media has basically just put Operation Mockingbird on steroids. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is a, a very, very important aspect. Payments is also integrated into our platform. So you can make payments between parties. Influencers can even have their own like uh, crypto, like sort of like reward system for their followership. And they can create collective bargaining communities for different vendors to put stores on the, their pages and everything. How does the payment structure work? Because I think that's a, a huge comp component of data mining is done through payment processors. Yeah. Yeah. It's all through. Uh, we have our own credit cards and everything even, um, you know, that are linked to our token. So when you make a, so let's say that I have Aubrey Marcus points and I want Robert Grant points, then basically, because there are different benefits within, and I could trade those points back and forth. Those points are like um, access to this opinion leader, right? Or celebrity, as the case may be. Right. It's, I can't possibly answer all the text messages I get every day. Sure. So, so if I could figure out a way to delineate the crowd and say, okay, my most, you know, ardent, followers would would definitely get the highest access to me right and i would respond to them because i know that they've been very active in my community that's great and people want that people definitely want that but then they also want access to better prices of products that the whole community could benefit from together as a cooperative you could think of each sovereign community as creating their own co-op of purchase power mm -hmm. now, i created a system like this back in 2013 uh, at another company that took off like crazy, became a unicorn company very fast in healthcare. Okay. But I could say that uh, that this is an exciting time because we are leveling the playing field for the first time. Individuals can have access to encryption that is at the highest level of encryption and that no government can crack. Which is huge, yeah. Well, because when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the next phase possibly being a, a technocratic sovereignty, I think that is what they're their hopes are, that is their plans. They're moving in that direction. When you, you look into the writings of Brzezinski and Kissinger, I mean, they all talk about this. So it would be great to be able to use their their technology against them to create individual sovereignty. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> right, yeah, which sounds like what you're doing. Well, I know we don't have a tremendous amount of time. I have so many other questions. Keep going, right ask me whatever. Okay. Um, so I know you've spent uh, a lot of time. You spent 11 days in the in the Great Pyramids. Uh, you've been diving in for the past uh, decade or so into sacred geometry. So I, I'd like to first hear what made you, with with your background, you know, what made you decide to dive into that? You know, um, first of all, I was always fascinated by geometry. I don't know why. I always felt like geometry was the the music that we experience with our eyes. Sure. And um, something about form and and function fitting together and the beautiful simplicity that is geometry is an amazing thing. So for me, my study deep into mathematics and geometry started after a crisis I had in 2016 and that caused me to question the nature of reality itself and my objective experience within it. And maybe there's no such thing as objectivity. And... Um, you know, is the world as it is or is it as I am? Is 
you know, the bigger question. Am I just reflecting and seeing through my perception certain experiences that are either benefiting me or not? And then I had to realize that I'm just as guilty as anyone else to think that the only ethical choices are the things that benefit me. What a surprise. And so when I started going deep into mathematics and questioning the very nature of reality, does one plus one really equal two? And what if I looked at that more from a geometric standpoint? You know, does one line plus another line actually equal three because now I can make a triangle? There's some, so in, something absolute in that, right? Yeah. So in that context, one and one equals three because the third line becomes implied. Right. Right. So there's something very, very basic and powerful in the study of geometry. And then you realize that something like the Flower of Life or Metatron's Cube allows you to draw any geometric shape that the universe can offer up in any hyperdimensional perspective also. It's just a matter of figuring out how to make the dots connect. Right. And I don't need a ruler to do any of it. I can do it all based on ratio. Right. So then you start drawing it and you start getting into the mind of an architect and how genius it actually all is. And what am I looking at? Am I looking at lines just arbitrarily placed on a piece of paper, or are these representations of gravity itself? Right. Because these lines are necessary. Einstein said that geometry is gravity. Not that it represents or it codifies gravity, but it is gravity, which is a fascinating concept. Yeah. And... I believe that to be absolutely true. I published a paper not long ago on uh, a novel classification of galactic spirals, which you can find on my website or on the Cornell uh, University website, archive.org. Okay. And, and basically what that basically shows is that there is a web of straight lines that create all the pitches of all galactic structures that are spiral in shape. It's got to the point where we could even predict the exact speed of a hurricane on the ground for the wind, right? Well, how fast the wind is blowing. We could predict it just by looking at satellite photography to tell you what the modularity of that satellite fo photograph is, the pitch of the spiral. We knew exactly the speed. We could tell you, oh, based on the tightness of this pitch, mm -hmm. we could tell you the speed on the ground is 145 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there is something to this, right? And, and they were simple polygons simple polygonal structures that have right triangles within them that was defining the spirality of the pitch of the galaxy and the hurricane. It was not the Fibonacci number, although that's one small subset of those. The Fibonacci pattern would basically represent what I would call a mod 10 spiral. So the mod 10 spiral is a Fibonacci pattern. It's, it's got a mod uh, spirality or logarithmic base value of 1.23606, which is the square root of five minus one. Okay, so the square root of five is a fundamental part of the golden ratio. So that works for a pentagon and then an inverted pentagon creating a mod 10 spiral. But right. every spiral we saw in nature was actually lining up perfectly with basic polygonal structures. Squares, hexagons, heptagons, octagons, nonagons, you know, and decagons, you name it, decagons, and and we we could see by the pitch the 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 basically tighter the spiral the faster the rotation mm -hmm. and we could draw these correlations in our research and we published it and um i was really happy when that one got published and 
parts of that ended up in my book, uh, Philomath, uh, and then also in Polymath. But, but basically, I got deep into mathematics because I wanted to understand the objective nature of what I was perceiving objectively. Because mathematics was also kind of confusing to me. I, I speak eight languages. I learned five languages totally fluently. And so I looked at mathematics as a language and said, okay, if it's a language, yeah. then what would the numbers be? Will those be nouns? And and what would the irrational numbers be? Well, that would be like in French when we say, je suis en train de quelque chose, when I'm in the train of doing something, but not finished yet with it. So it's like appending an ing or a gerund on top of a, a noun to make it a verb, right? right? So then the irrational numbers have these irrational limitless tails that never end. So those are like appending an ing on the end of it. So the irrational numbers become verbs. And then I realized, well, what are the sentences in this language? Well, it's it's formed from overlapping circles. And where those overlapping circles intersect each other, you can have geometric forms, be they two-dimensional or three-dimensional. And those are the sentences and paragraphs. Wow. So you have a whole new way of looking at mathematics as a language of communication with the universe. It is. And you could see the signature of the architect throughout all of it. And it's beautiful. So beautiful. And and so when I started seeing that and realizing it and knowing that there are set rules that are so perfectly almost ordained, right? It's like you can't deviate from these. This is why the ancient Greeks liked to find solutions to the Greek problems that were not requiring any measurements whatsoever because God as a creator of the universe, and I believe the entire universe is God, doesn't need measurements he uses ratio to create distinction between different objects and things. It's all based on ratio. And and when you start digging deeper to that and you realize, well, wait a minute, that's the entire world around us. How do I know what pleasure is unless I've experienced its opposite pain? How do I know what joy is unless I've experienced its opposite sadness? How do I know, you know what love is unless I've experienced its opposite fear? So we use everything in ratio. And then I started realizing the entire universe is a beautiful mathematical matrix of ratio that we use our different senses to experience in different ways. So like I said, geometry is the music we experience with our eyes. Yeah. And you could look at architecture and say, wow, it's like a music. I can, I'm looking at this beautiful architecture and I'm hearing symphonies. It, because you basically are. Every one of our senses are picking up the subtleties of this beautiful matrix of mind, which is all based on mathematics and even emotions. Even emotions are mathematical. I had uh, probably the world's preeminent expert in my office, Donald Hoffman, mm -hmm. who he's the expert in the world on mathematical mapping of human consciousness. He's at UCI, he's a professor. And Chetan Sahotra is his partner, and they both came in and spent several hours with me in December. And it was fascinating because they said to me, they, they're familiar with my work and everything, and they said, how do you believe the universe starts off as, as one and then separates into all of its infinite diversification from the number one? So the, the one separates itself into the many for the joy of becoming one again. What's the process that it goes through to do that? And so I thought about that. Mm -hmm. And then they said, we have a second question. I said, okay. And they said, how would you apply a mathematical equation to emotions? 
And I was flying to Austria and contemplating these two very, very deep and difficult questions. They're not small questions. No. <laughs> and um, I wrote back and said, I think I found a solution for emotion. Now, nobody would argue that music can induce certain emotional states. Right. When we watch a movie, we see a villain come on the screen. There's always a diminished fifth chord played in the background because this villain comes in the scene and right. that is in line with the villain coming in the scene and the colors that he's probably wearing, the colors around him and everything are all oriented a certain way because they bring fear or they bring some anxiety Do to the Do you feel an emotion that, you're, that will carry the, the theme that they're trying to convey? Yeah. Right. And so then what I realized is that there must be a connection then between coordinate relationships of music and emotional, you know, evocation. And clearly, most people would understand that. So it turns out certain chords, particularly major chords, make you feel exuberant and happy. Mm-hmm. Other chords, diminished chords or minor chords, can make you feel sad or melancholy. And so then I started thinking, but what are those chords but for the mathematical relationship of ratio? Sure. So then we have the mathematics of emotion. Emotion. So then a perfect fifth is giving you joy, right? You have love with the major third. Mm -hmm. And the major chords, you know, the perfect fourth, these are giving you this beautiful kind of exuberant happy feeling. But as soon as you throw in some minor seconds, some minor third, some minor sixth, and and diminished fifth, then all of a sudden it's like you're on edge. Is that true across cultures? Because I thought I've read some studies saying that that it wasn't necessarily true for all cultures. No, it definitely is. Okay. Minor chords. So what you're thinking of is things like pentatonic scales, et cetera, okay. that have like different chordant relationships. Yes. But the emotions, it's just that... <laughs> It's funny, you know, in America, we love happy endings of movies. Yeah, we do. Although and, it's not, not so true anymore, but that, that was kind of a theme, yeah. Well, in Greece, there was sort of like a big theme along tragedy. Yes, there was. <laughs> they sure. love them some tragedy, right? Well, in Korea, I remember I lived in Korea. I speak Korean. The mm-hmm. first Korean joke I ever heard was there were three birds on an electric wire next to each other. And an electric charge came through it and and burned all three of them and killed them. And then everyone laughs. That was funny. Okay. And I'm wondering what I missed in the translation. (laughs) Yeah, I would have been wondering too. But that's the thing is that what they find, I remember seeing uh, Lion King when I lived in Tokyo, Japan, and I was laughing at certain sections of the movie and no one else was laughing because we were the only guy jeans in the movie theater, Mm -hmm. right? So- I was laughing, and then the parts they were laughing at were not funny. You know, like, not to me, anyway. So it was like, what the heck? You know, when Mufasa died, everyone laughed. I was like, wait a minute, that's like Simba's dad just died. Everyone was laughing. I couldn't understand it. Like, wait, what's funny about that? I I don't know. So, So what I'm saying is that different cultures like different things because they associate more with different things. It doesn't mean that they, it might mean they feel more comfortable with some of those things. You know, different cultures feel more comfortable with unhappy endings. Right. It's right. Tolstoy maybe felt more comfortable with unhappy endings. Well, but Dostoevsky, right? 
Maybe he feels un- more, more comfortable with unhappy endings versus feeling comfortable with them. I mean, who knows? But, but the point is that these different chordal relationships are universal. And, and it also translates into color of light because you could take those same chordal relationships and apply the mathematics of those intervals because a perfect fifth is three over two. The, uh, the major third is the cube root of two. And you've got all these relationships, you know, the perfect fourth is four over three. So you could take those same things, apply color to what is sound, and then apply those colors together. And you'll probably say, oh, the major chords are all probably going to be beautifully matching colors. And then the ones that are discordant, that are more minor chords, would be sort of like clashy. Don't really go together. Yeah. See, it's all connected. Right. Leonardo da Vinci said, to achieve a complete mind, study the art of science. Study the science of art. Learn how to see. Realize that everything connects to everything else. Right. That was actually going to be my next question. You know, I was thinking about, like, Plato when he created, and I think I have a lot of questions about him. I'm currently kind of wrestling with this, actually. But when he created his uh, academia, you know, his uh, his academy, they, he felt that you had to learn science, math, grammar, logic, rhetoric, all these very, like, foundational teachings before you could go into any field such as political science or, you know, even philosophy and uh, any of these uh, more abstract realms, you had to learn these basics. And I, today we see so much of the opposite of that. There's a, you know, very pe- few people are even being taught basic math. I mean, Common Core has kind of destroyed math. I well, think it's racist. Calculator. Math is racist now, apparently. Apparently, yeah. I mean, math is racist. And I mean, people aren't taught the basic fundamentals of science, which I think is why they're so easily um, misled with fear because they don't know a lot of the basic principles. Uh, so my question is, just why do you think that that's happened? Because I think humans have just lost so much of what would be their innate human right to uh, a really foundational knowledge of the world and their experience in it. And I think we're less capable of ascertaining that because we've been, I'd not to say that people can't educate themselves as you certainly done, you know, but we're, we're not, as I said from the beginning, you know, we're encouraged to be siloed off and very hyper-specialized. And so it's it's one of the best ways to control society. Right. Right. I mean, it's very true. You know, you mentioned Plato's Academy. Yeah. And and I'm sorry. So sorry. Let me just add the the thing that I wrestle with with him is that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that I, I wonder how much, you know, he talked about like the philosopher kings and how he want how they should rule. And so I often wonder how much there there are people who make the argument. There is a case, I guess, to be made for this, that he was creating the academy to be able to bring these teachings to the masses. But then there's also a part of me that when I read his writings, it seems like he's signaling his initiates and trying to keep this, uh, you know, some level of uh knowledge occulted and you know reserved yeah, it's like pythagoras right maybe they were the same person entirely possible <laughs> through reincarnation i think they were so on the doorway at the academy it states let no man who is not a geometer enter my house mm-hmm. yeah 
meaning to say, let no one who is unjust come in here, for geometry is equality and justice. So let no man or no one who is not a geometer enter in my house. That's kind of uh, powerful because there's something about geometry that expands your perspectives. And I believe that the only whole truth that we could achieve in life is by learning how to expand our perspectives to see alternative viewpoints. Now, I may not agree with alternative viewpoints, but I need to be able to empathize and realize that they exist. I may not want discordant chords in my life all around me all the time because I don't want to be a pessimistic, you know. Pessimists, by the way, never call themselves pessimists. They call themselves realists. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Whereas optimists actually refer to themselves as optimists. Yeah. I've never met a someone who said, oh, yeah, I'm a pessimist. But I've met many people that say, I'm an optimist, right? Because it's not socially acceptable to call yourself a pessimist. That doesn't mean you're not a pessimist just by calling yourself a realist. And most people that call themselves realists... A cynic, though. That I do hear. Oh, yeah. No, then they're really a super pessimist. So if they actually go as far as saying beyond realist that they're cynical, then they don't realize it, but they're actually pessimists, and they're creating negative outcomes every day in their life without even realizing it. Right. self through that, through that lens with which they see the world, everything they see is what they expected to see, which is pessimistic. Right. And so then, of course, they're angry and upset with society because, you know, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. Mm-hmm. If you spot something, that means you got something. Right. If you're judging someone else for something, it's you that's doing the thing that you're judging. That's why people that complain the most about other people that are arrogant are usually the most arrogant. Right. Yeah. Ever noticed that? Yeah, I, I've definitely noticed that. A lot of projection. Yeah. We have a ton of projection in society. And I think what's happening is we're waking up to it. Um, but I'm going to have to go now because I do have another appointment. But I want to thank you for taking the time with me. And um, I'll happily do another talk with you at some point in time in the future. But uh, but thanks so much and, and look forward to seeing you again. I, I would love it. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to the next one. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.